Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, television producer Peter Fincham. Oh, the flowers of indulgence and the weeds of yesteryear. Like criminals, they have choked the breath of conscience and good cheer. The sun beat down upon the steps of time to light the way, to ease the pain of idleness and the memory of decay. Wow. Uh, We just asked you to choose lines that you enjoyed from Bob's canon. Why did you choose those? Well, I've got two completely different reasons of having chosen them. So there's the silly reason and the the more serious reason. Um, So the silly reason is this that I, the first time I ever met um, uh, Bob Dylan's manager, Jeff Rosen, who, who, who's become a friend of mine, I was in that slightly nervous state that you're in when you meet a celebrity, because I thought this is as near as I will ever get to meeting Bob. I'll never meet him. I accept that. <laughs> but I'm meeting his manager. He knows him. And so when you're meeting a, a celebrity, you get a bit nervous and you start blurting out stupid things. So I found myself saying within a couple of minutes um, that I was thinking of forming a, a Dylan tribute band. Um, because I actually play in a in a Rolling Stones tribute band or Rolling Stones and Beatles tribute band called No Expectation, um, and he asked the question, "What's what's the name of the band?" Um, so I said, "Well, I, I thought we would call ourselves the Flowers of Indulgence," <laughs> uh, which I think is a really good name for a tribute band. Yeah, but, absolutely. But it goes further. I said, "I thought we would play together for a few years, and then we'd split up as bands do, and then we'd let a bit of time pass, and then we would reform as the Weeds of Yesteryear." <laughs> And we ended up having a conversation about which is a better name for a tribute band, the Flowers of Indulgence or the Weeds of Yes. I'd like to ask you two. This is like which Spinal one? Tap when they become the originals and the new originals. Exactly. And the idea of deciding in advance to split up, I think, is, I know. is very Otherwise, few, we very can't Bob call Jello. ourselves the Weeds of Yesteryear. <laughs> yeah. Which, have, as we get older, also, the Weeds of Yesteryear becomes kind of a kind but of... But I find when, when I, I once um, did a, some filming with John Malkovich, it was the sort of thing, I, and I, I saw him on stage, and I thought it was the best performance I'd ever seen. I was completely in awe of him, and I thought, oh, God, I know I'm going to say something terrible when I meet him. It's just going to be awful. But luckily, he, uh, the first thing he said to me is, did you see the fight last night? And I happened to be a boxing fan. It was, it was, uh, it was uh, Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. And so, and I said, no, don't tell me because I've got it on tape and I haven't seen it yet. And we had a, a normal conversation where we talked about boxing. And then it was fine because I, I behaved like a human being instead of a, a fanboy idiot. Yes. And it, it is good when you can somehow when get through it. When you get through, through the barrier. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But the more serious reason is I, I chose these lines because, I mean, obviously, like anybody else coming on your podcast, there's a million different things you could choose. But the sheer kind of extravagance of his love of language is a I mean that line like criminals they have choked the breath of conscience and good cheer whoa hold on a minute what mm. does that mean uh-huh. yeah. and and you, you know has it I've never been very good with the tracing of references but is it biblical that people say there's a bit of William Blake in yeah. this song they're probably both right yeah. but whatever or wherever it, his ability to lodge a phrase in your mind that resonates around frankly for the rest of your life is unbelievable um and you know displayed very early on in his career but this is in the early 80s this is in a an era when you know not many people would say was one of the great dylan eras Mm -hmm. but here he's righteous the quality of his writing Mm -hmm. is no other songwriter could write that line no. Um, uh, you know, he's, he's just out there on his own. And I thought it was, and I think that's true of every grain of sand 
as a song. Uh, there isn't a single line in it that that isn't simply memorable and mm. and just phrased in a way that that that, that it keeps coming back to you. So, yeah, I agree. I think I, I also think it's one of his most metrically regular songs. If you're going to make the case for Dylan as poet, and I remember someone said to me a couple of years ago post-Nobel Prize, you know, give me an example. And that's the song that I, I quoted at him. Turns out I knew it all off the top of my head. Yeah. But I said, you know, you, you, like 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 Cain, I now behold this chain of events that I must break. Hang on a minute. That, mm. This takes some analysis. And there is a kind of, and, and I think, yeah, there is Blake in there. And I think there's Shakespeare in there. And there's the Bible in there. But the, the rhythmical meter is something you don't find in much Dylan. But it's there in that song. It's just so dense. I, I completely agree, and and it and it addresses that issue of of how a song, and as Dylan himself puts it, when asked what makes a good song, well, it speaks to people. You mm. it relates to you, so it relates it, emotionally. It, it sets an incredibly powerful mood, and you relate to it. So you can take it without really listening to the words at all, and it'll yeah. still have a powerful effect on you. I'm sort of intrigued. Going back to you mentioned of uh, Jeff Rosen. Yeah. If you because uh, I know that Luke and I. Have disc- we haven't known each other that long, maybe three or four years, but I, we've learned about each other basically th- through the fact that we talk about Bob Dylan probably about 90% of the time. Do you talk with Jeff Rosen about Bob Dylan or well, do you get more personal than that? N- uh, I, I would never, in a sense, uh, ask personal stuff because I think that would be in- intrusive or whatever. But I don't what, mean personal about Dylan. No, no. What's, what's lo- lovely about, about Jeff, who I've known for about 10 or 12 years, and mm. I seem very, very occasional, I don't know him that well, is that some managers of, of you know talented people of artists uh, to be honest are quite cynical about their clients and about their mm. and about their work and will almost encourage you to fall into conversation that's uh, you, you know treating it in a almost dismissive way mm. and and Jeff as he would say himself you know we started working with Bob he was a fan he remains a fan he will always remain a fan he loves uh, um, uh, talking. He, he he loves being with somebody where where you can go down a kind of rabbit hole of talking about a very obscure track that's mm. on one of the bootleg series that he's curated <laughs> and and mm. rightly I think he's very proud of the uh, bootleg series and, yeah. and that he's curated mm. them brilliantly. Mm. Um, so you, you know I, I think we you know we we ended up talking in that first conversation about uh, is it Angelina Angelina that mm. uh, yeah. which is one of the most mm. impenetrable songs mm, that absolutely. Dylan has ever written. I mean, <laughs> I I challenge anybody to work out what those words There's mean. A black Mercedes rolling through the combat exactly, yeah. exactly. But but yet he sings it. It's a magnificent vocal mm. performance, and he, he sings it as his life depends on it. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's that 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 strange thing of the difference, the emotional effect of music and. And if you want to, you know, which I would generally try to avoid it, to over-intellectualise the analysis of the lyrics. But frankly, you can do both. It addresses yeah. both brilliantly. And it's no accident that it's from exactly the same period as Every Grain of Sand, you know. It's an infidel's outtake, isn't it? And I mean, the, the list of great songs left off infidels is, mm. is, is slightly longer than the, <laughs> yes, I know. Than yes, the list of them, yeah. not very good songs <laughs> put on it than that imagine if you've been working with Dylan like not Mark Knopfler who, yeah. who, who produced it and, and the other people around him at the point when Bob says well here's the running order guys yeah. can you now please put it out you look at you no yeah. you've left off line yeah, William McTell you've left off foot of pride I um, even a light song like Tell Me is a yeah. charming song that's yeah. a whole mm-hmm. lot better than 
Um, uh, what are those? Don't uh, fall apart on me tonight. No, I liked it. No, oh, you no, like that I liked yeah, okay, okay. that very much. No, I'm thinking of Union Sundown. Oh, Union Sundown. Sundown. Oh, yeah. Union. That's mm. a terrible song. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, just I think I think we have to just stop and, and be grateful that the bootleg series even exists. Yes. And I got into Dylan in the early 90s, just as that first one came out. And in a funny way, that first three um, volumes was my way in. And every time one comes out, I just think we've, you know, we're about to have the, the complete New York sessions of Blood on the Tracks. By the time we put this podcast out, it will be released. Yes. I'm astonished that we're going to be able to hold this thing in our hands. And you've got, you've got to credit and thank Jeff Rosen for that. I also love just on a kind of, you know, trivial basis that that, that, that we as Dylan fans can debate endlessly and, and the release of more Blood, more tracks will give us a fresh opportunity. Mm. Would Blood on the Tracks have been better if he just stopped when he left the sessions in New York and said, put out the best takes? Or did he add anything to it by going to Minnesota mm. just after Christmas and, and re-recording some of the tracks? Or did he muddy it up, if you like? Yeah. And and that's a sort of debate we've gone having for years. Well, we? it, it also applies to lots of his of, of his music. I mean, he said, I think, in No Direction Home, that the artist must be in a constant state of becoming. And what it means for Dylan is that at any one point, he's different from what he was last month, last week, certainly yes. last yeah. year. It's so Bob Dylan to muddy it up, isn't it? Yeah. He's I mean, got this to, perfect know, album. And he... Planet Waves, for example, is, is recorded in November 73. Before the flood, a lot of it's January 74. You're telling me those are only two months apart, the yeah, performances? Yeah. The voice is different, totally different the treatment, voice. a completely yeah. different voice. A, an entirely new identity that he just said, well, I'm going to do this now. I don't know if you've seen any very recent set lists. But he's abruptly dropped all the American standards, all the crooning. Oh, really? Gone, gone, just gone. Great. Like it never happened. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. So what's he gone back I'm to? Not quite on the same page as you, <laughs> Kerry. Great. No, no, I, I, I like I him. Like some I like him crooning. And I, I, I do like some of them. It's just that it was getting a little out of yeah, hand. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So what's he gone back to? Well, uh, well I've only seen somebody sent me a set list from a few days ago. I mean, quite familiar. Um, for my money, a bit too familiar, maybe. You, you, you know, sort of an encore of blowing in the wind and, and uh, you know, um, Rolling Stone or well, whatever. It's interesting that he's completely dropped them, you say. So does that mean... That's very Bob, isn't it? Yeah. You, you know, so he no longer presumably has that mic that he used to use. Either, yeah, old yeah. Fashioned well, mic. it was all a kind of bit of a theatrical act, wasn't it? I'm yeah. now yeah. a crooner, and, and I, I don't think we'll regret that he recorded five albums of them because I think... Um, in among them are some wonderful, wonderful yeah. performances, but but probably it's not it's not what we want him to do forever. Is no, it? it's enough. Well, it, also, it, and I, I've become more forgiving of, of that stuff since we talked to uh, Paul Morley on on this podcast, and he was saying, and he just put forward a theory to me which utterly changed the way I listened to Bob Dylan, which is. We're wasting our time talking about this period better than that period, and this one isn't quite up to that period. The whole picture, all mm. you know. But whatever it is, uh, over half a century, well over half a century, the arc that's there, everything is kind of interesting. And I was listening to Budokan yesterday, which I had real trouble with, but still I'm interested in where it comes in the story. Yeah, one of my least favourite. Yeah, mine too. Um, And I was having real trouble. I actually love it because of where it comes in my story. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine was listening to it and I I sort of was drifting away from Dylan and then he he played it for me. Yeah, and and I I loved it because it was so crazy and Mm. the arrangements are so insane. So I'll always have a soft spot for it. Whereas if I was being uh, objective, Mm. I'd probably put it down. I saw him on that tour. I saw him in 74. No, it is 78, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, I saw him at Earl's Court, the first time I ever saw him live, actually. That's interesting. That's a lot Budicon of people, arrangement. yeah, for a, a, a number of people we've had on the show, of that yeah. was the first, their entrance. Mm. Sort of a black but what was, your, cool. what was yeah. your entrance uh, well. to uh, his recorded Well, uh, The very uh, first time so you heard it. I was born in 56, so I would say at about the age of 14, maybe 15, so 70, 71, I sort of, uh, probably from reading about him in The Melody Maker or whatever, yeah. I thought this sounds interesting. Um, and I was going against, I was going against a prevailing trend at the school I was at. The school, I was at this boarding school in Kent where we had these things, these bedrooms that were called cubies, like cubicles. And, and you, you, they're basically wooden-sided um, cubicles with, but all you could put over the roof was a, you know, sort of old blanket or whatever, mm. give yourself some privacy. Yeah, right. And boys would come back from the holidays and, and if they're, uh, they would have persuaded their parents to buy them ever more powerful hi-fi systems. You know, if somebody mm. next door had 80 watts, you wanted to have 100 watts. Right. And, and so, you know, you, they're coming in after Christmas holidays and plug in their hi-fi. Now, this definitely created a mood of people who liked Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, <laughs> i.e. it really worked with people who liked loud music. Yeah. So it was at that time really going against the trend to say, I'm going to start listening to songs with guitars, Bob Dylan, yeah. Neil Young or whatever. Mm. And you became, which I suppose I quite enjoyed, part of a persecuted minority of people who liked acoustic music. It was the beginning <laughs> of a long road. It was the beginning of a long yeah. road of trying to explain to people that, that he can <laughs> sing and that he's, he's funny and that he's all yeah. the things that people who don't really realise that he is. Um, so, therefore, 7071, he wasn't really releasing much music at the mm -hmm. time. It was a little gap. Um, but the two things I remember in particular were Blonde on Blonde, because I understood that that was, you know, many people thought of his greatest album. So I bought myself, a, you know, a vinyl, saved up for weeks and weeks, a double, you know, first double album ever. And then I sent off, I can't even remember where I sent off this, for the bootleg of the Albert Hall concert. I've still got it, and it's in a white cover, and it's scratchy as mm. hell. It's only got the electric. It hasn't got the acoustic mm. And it was, it, presumably it was Free Trade Hall masking. Oh, as, it, as, indeed, as but Albert it says Hall. on yeah, the yeah. thing, you know, Al yeah. Albert Hall, and I listened slavishly to that, yeah. and, 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 of course, when it was then released officially yeah. many years later, it was a great excitement to me. So I went in via those two routes, Blonde on mm. Blonde, and, and Albert Hall. So very similar time, you know, 66. Yeah. And gradually... As I could afford them, because of course it's a problem, you know, unbeknownst to my kids and to kids today, is that you couldn't open a door like you can with Spotify to the whole of recorded sure. music. Mm. You could only listen to what you could afford so, to buy. I'm interested in uh, what you made of Blonde on Blonde as a 14 year old, because to me it's it's such an adult album. When yes. I heard it, uh, uh, and I was around mm. the same age, I, I these concepts of. Uh, you know, when he said words like lover, I, th I thought, oh, wow, that's yeah, yeah. just so sexy. It's uh, just like a woman. It was it was a bit too much for me to take. It, how did you approach it? Well, I approach it probably in a rather earnest and studious way. And by <laughs> the same token of wanting to go down the sort of alternative route from, you know, Led Zeppelin, uh, I would go down the slightly, you know, the, the sort of byways rather than the highways of the... So I'm a huge fan of the third side of Blonde on Blonde, which is songs like Absolutely Sweet Marie, mm. Fourth Time Around, and so on. Mm. And, would you know, I'm not such a big fan of Rainy Day Women. Um, I know it's an awful thing to say, but whenever I've seen him live and he's and he's got into that and this sort of mm -hmm. they stone you, everybody must get stoned, and I think, oh, this is a bit of a sing-along in a, yeah. in a way. 
Um, uh, so I would, you know, just, it was such a big album. You could explore so many mm. different songs. Mm. And I, I think I would listen in a mood of great seriousness to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. But, but you, you know, I hope over the years I've been both a a devoted fan of Dylan and a critical fan of Dylan. So I think Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands strains for poetic effect a bit too much. And actually, I get a bit bored listening to it. I would... Uh, I heard you on this podcast discussing Highlands from Time Out of Mind mm-hmm. with with uh, with David Morrissey. I prefer that. That's funny. That's uh, mm. that's got a narrative mm. that is wonderfully bizarre and and and. Uh, um, uh, so I found this that, that Sad Eyed Lady Lowlands a, a bit of a long slog, if I'm honest. Mm. But I love some of the kind of lesser known songs, and and I totally bought into the idea that this is. Um, uh, this is, you know, this was made at the time of a lot of, you know, pop pop acts were still making pop music. Yeah. And this is extraordinarily sophisticated um, and wonderfully played by the the, 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 the session musicians. The, the, that, the thing that Dylan refers to, the thin, wild Mercury sound, mm. it's there in Blonde on Blonde. It's a, I wouldn't say today that it's the album I listen to the most. Um, and I'm very, very much believe that you know people who don't know enough about Bob Dylan think he did all his best work between 62 or 63 and 66 um uh I spend more time listening to modern Dylan than old Dylan Mm -hmm. and and there are wonders in everything from oh mercy onwards certainly um uh but it is a great album I think the Albert Hall had this added thrill of it really was a bootleg do, yeah. do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean? I know that the bootleg series uses the word bootleg, but they are official Columbia mm. releases. Mm. This was really, a, you know, a bit like sort of buying drugs on the street corner. You were you oh, were yeah. buying something illegal that you shouldn't have. I remember going to Camden Town and trying to find all five volumes of the genuine basement tapes in the early yeah. to mid-90s. Yeah. It was hard. Yeah. But when you found another one, and you never found them in order, you thought, great, I've got, I've got this one now. But it's know. interesting that you mentioned uh, drugs, because to me this is his... It's a very stoned album, and it, 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 uh, if I'm listening to it late at late-ish at night, you can really sort of enter into the 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 stonedness of it, the mm. late night-ishness of it. The sad eyed lady, of the lowlands, just sounds to me well, like a, a four o'clock in the morning. Well, Al Cooper said, feel. didn't he? He said he said Dylan nailed the kind of four o'clock in the morning sound on this album more than on anything else. Did he? Oh absolutely, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I mean, in rainy day women is. I, I really like rainy day women just because I, I do now, having not mm. liked it originally, uh, because of the the craziness of it. And uh, what's the one where the guy uh, plays the bass and the trumpet at the same time? I would. Uh, well, it, uh, it's Rainy Day uh, Women, isn't it? No, 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 they're all playing. Uh, they're all. Oh, 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 it's most likely. There's a particular one where yeah, the, yeah, yeah. this guy, this this um, Nashville musician, Charlie like, McCoy, or uh, I can't remember who it was. Mm. Uh, at one point, um, on one of the tracks, um, yeah, keeps the bass line going and plays trumpet <laughs> yeah, on, on, on the be, chorus as well. Have you heard the threads that you can get in the in that big box set where you can just listen to the. Bass, almost in isolation, it sounds like somebody twanging a, um, you, you know, twanging a, a, a sort of elastic band. I think mm. there's a thing that that there's nothing that you can do about now, mm. which is if you go from basically from Bob Dylan, the first album, through to uh, another side of Bob Dylan, I think you have recordings that cannot be improved. 
In other words, they knew how to record a man and a guitar <laughs> and, a, and a harmonica. And so whether, whether it's Don't Think Trice, it's all right, or, or, or um, Girl from North Country, I, I think they're, sort of, as it were, as works of arts, they're, they're perfect. They're perfect. Mm. The, 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 the recording of them, you couldn't improve in a studio mm. today. Inevitably, you then go into a phase where he's gone electric, but they aren't quite catching up with how to record. Mm-hmm. And so the production values are, in a sense, more dated than they are with the acoustic stuff that came before it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you pick apart, like a Rolling Stone or, um, or, or the tracks on Blonde on Blonde, you, you'll find, as I say, that the bass sounds like a, a, an mm-hmm. elastic band being twanged. It all comes together. Yeah. It all comes together. But it's, it's a more approximate process that Dylan himself was not a studio whiz. You know, he wasn't, um, he was trying to capture magic in a bottle and he, and he, and he did. Yeah, yeah. But by, by 10 years later, by the 70s, a recording and mixing techniques had, had advanced enormously and, and, and you can't retrospectively I think, do much about that. I think Bob Johnston um, deserves some credit for this as well. You know, the, the Bob of, is it Rolling Bob, lest we forget, when he when he grabbed Dylan, you know, mid yes. Highway sixty one, and said, you know, you really want to head down to Nashville. We got some musicians down there that, that could yes. be what you're looking for. And I think around Blonde on Blonde, lots of things change. You get, you know, really good studio musicians. Um, you get um, something that I only discovered fairly recently was the the appearance of the mid late. Yeah. Know, apart from Ballad of a Thin Man, until Blonde on Blonde. There are no middle eights in his songs. He's not really concerned with melody. Mm, very interesting. And he hears Rubber Soul and he thinks, no, hang on a minute. Yeah, and yeah. funny enough, you latched onto that third side. Yes. Absolutely Sweet Marie, Most Likely You Go Your Way, and as well as I Want You Just Like a Woman, they have these soaring middle eights, which, unless you actually think about it, you don't need to think about it, we, none of us have, but you realise that's what it is that lifts these songs out I'm, of That's uh, fascinating. Something. I'm fascinated by middle eights. When, when we play in my band No Expectations, where we play a mixture of Beatles and Rolling Stones song, mm. when it comes to middle eights, they are the exact opposite. The Beatles' middle eight is often the best bit in the whole song, yeah. when, it, mm. when it ascends to another yep. level. Yep. Yep. The Rolling Stones write really bad middle eights, <laughs> which are basically marking time until you get back <laughs> to the great <laughs> song that, yes. they are, that they are interrupting, as it were. Both... Both methods work, by the way. Yeah, if you've got yeah. a great song, it's fine. But the writing of middle eight is something that Lennon McCartney, I would say, took to a, a level that nobody's ever quite I agree. matched. I agree. Um, I'm going to listen to Blonde on Blonde. Uh, surely that would then be true of Nashville Skyline. Nashville Skyline, yes. yes. Where it's he's nothing, writing much more formalised songs that follow the rules of songwriting. I, yeah. I, I tried to count these up on the train on the way in this morning. And, yeah, so basically you get Ballad of a Thin Man in isolation on Highway 61, I think he's the only middle eight. Blonde on Blonde, you get about five. As far as I can tell, none in the basement tapes. One on John Wesley Harding, even though there are no choruses. Yes. And then on Nashville Skyline... I think every new song with lyrics has a middle eight. Oh, interesting, yeah. and it's so interesting that that's, that's the accessible field of study here of the of the yeah. architecture yeah. songs because blood on the tracks. Mm-hmm. Every song has this way, in musical terms, of returning to the tonic. Yeah. Uh, in other words, each verse is like a little journey that comes back to tangled up in blue, mm-hmm. simple twist of fate, where it resolves on the key, yes. the tonic of the key. Yes. 
And it's like he makes a rule for himself that all the songs will follow that structure. Yeah. yeah. And with so many artists, they would discover something and that would be how they do things from now on. With Dylan, he discovers oh. something and says, well, I'll do it for now. Yeah. And I'll drop yeah. this. Throw it away. It's like he's throwing totally away his, uh, exactly. his American standards. We were listening in my kitchen the other day to uh, most of the time on the, the, the bootleg, the official yeah. bootleg version. Yeah. We listened to the just the first minute or two. We, we both loved it. And then we put on the officially released one, the Daniel Lanois produced one yeah and i had a, a, a revelation i realized why dylan was fighting with them the the whole time because mm. it's so heavily produced and you, you just overproduced i mean certainly if you listen to them back to back it's shocking what he's done with this great song i mean i i i you know, i like oh mercy as an album if well, I'm i, I think the it, production's but, better on oh mercy i think yeah. oh mercy got a lovely clean production on Time Out of Mind, it to me, it's as if he's stuck Dylan in a bathroom next door and recorded I him. I agree. And, and it's as if he's lost the trust in Dylan's voice. Mm. And it's been a thing for years, decades even, for people to say, well, he was once a good singer, but he's lost it, <laughs> which I don't agree with at all. Mm. It's aged, like a, the voice has <laughs> aged and it's more, you know, like a wine or whatever. It's like a very aged wine now, but that's not losing it. Mm. But I think on Time Out of Mind, it's a little bit of Daniel Lanois. But what, making thought, him sound worse. Yeah, though. we better not. We better not expose the voice. So there's a lot of... It's funny, though, because it, it ends up exposing it even more. Yeah. You know, really, it sounds like a buzzsaw sort of filtered through underwater or something. But, yeah, you take some... I mean, most of the time, I think, is 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 just perfect on almost every level because they are... They, whatever you reckon, Kerry, and I think, you know, don't disagree with you, but there is there is something cohesive at the end of it. Whereas, you know, Dirt Road Blues, the second track on Time Out of Mind, mm. you just think... And I know you're going for a sort of sun studio vibe here, but you've also stuck this sort of echo on and you're trying to make it sound Daniel Lanois-y as well. And it's just too much it's, for this song. You wonder in a way why he, cause why he let him get away with it. Yeah. I mean, there's that whole thing in Chronicles where he's recording Oh Mercy, although it's not mentioned. Yeah, but I think I we've all learned not to take Chronicles too no, literally. No, true, yes. true. But Gigantic I do believe... What rings true to me is the fact that he couldn't stay in there anymore mm. and, and listen to his stuff be turned into something yeah. else that, that I think he was doing for commercial reasons and he had to go out and, you know, get buy some crawdads or whatever. Mm. There's something very odd about this because what he says in Chronicles and what Time Out of Mind is evidence of is that he'd reached a point where he thought, I must put my trust in the hands of a producer. Mm. And he did, and he basically made a great album. Um, but I, I don't like the way the voice is recorded. Just almost immediately after that, he arrives at something he's stayed at ever since, which is to self-produce. Mm. And Love and Theft mm. is a beautifully produced album mm. oh, yeah. where you wouldn't change anything in the mixes or the treatment of the songs at all. And he's produced it. Mm. So why why was he able to do that with Love, Ad Love and Theft, but not only a few years earlier in Time well, Out of Mind? I don't, I mean, I don't my, get it. My, my guess of it would be that he always, he loves friction. Maybe. And yeah. he likes to fight against people and then maybe he feels that that makes him ultimately better maybe he got tired with of fighting with people i don't know well i spoke to my brother um fergus about this the other day and he said that he was listening to an interview with dylan in australia in about 2001 in which he said that as far as he's concerned his voice has never been properly produced and i said right so this is just before love and theft when he decided to to write that wrong and after that I guess he he does think his voice has been produced, but it it, it it's interesting because it, it betrays the notion that pre love and theft mm. he thinks every producer got his voice wrong. I don't. I think 
I think that's a bit unfair. I think it's a bit unfair. Well, there's some very good producers. John <laughs> Hammond know. did a pretty good yeah. job. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, who knows? But he's certainly, from that point on, as you say, he's, he's Jack Frost. I, I he's self-producing. He, I think he's producers have ill-served him. I think Oh Mercy might... Not Oh Mercy, sorry. Uh, uh, Under the Red Sky. Under the oh, Red Sky yes. could have been a goodish album. Yeah. But the production work, and probably worst of all, for my money, is Empire Burlesque. Yes. Where you have this flirtation with 80s production sounds mm, and yeah. so on. And, but, but actually, it's not a great collection of songs anyway, and but then it's made It's worse. kind of interesting to me about Bob's ego and, and its ups and downs. You know, you, you think with Empire Burlesque, what, uh, what happened? Or the, the, even the 80s, you think. Yes. I mean, what happened? He seemed to be so... He was writing some great songs that were yes. being ruined in the studio and employing producer after producer after producer after producer. Some albums would go through, you know, like half a dozen producers. Yeah. What What was going on in his head? I well, mean, look at that footage of him doing We Are The World, which is the same year that Empire Burlesque came out. He just is surrounded by the best and brightest of LA's session scene, you know, Stevie Wonder and Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, all these people. And he just looks lost. And there's a 10 minute chunk on YouTube of him doing his part in We Are The World. And first of all, he looks completely lost and just waiting for the 80s to end so he can kind of be comfortable again. But also, apparently, he had to ask Stevie Wonder um, to remind him how Bob Dylan sounded. He, and someone said this to him in an interview later on. said, did Stevie Wonder teach you how to sound like yourself on We Are The World? He went, yeah, that's right. Yeah, do yeah Stevie. Because <laughs> he was, and you see it in the studio, he's going, there's a choice we're making, we're saving our own lives. And he goes and talks to Stevie Wonder and then comes back and he goes, there's a choice we're making, we're saving our own lives. And you think, oh, is, is Stevie Wonder just told him to do a Bob Dylan impression? I wonder whether... Um, that takes care of our obligatory uh, Bob Dylan yeah, impression. Done. Yeah, I wonder done whether one. the Travelling Wilburys plays a more important role mm. in this renaissance than we realise. Mm. Because I cut, you probably know the chronology better. Is the Travelling Wilburys' first album before Oh Mercy? Just, yes. Yeah. yeah the year before. And so he's suddenly in among people he's comfortable with, clearly. Mm. Plainly enjoying himself. Mm. Singing very, very well. He yeah. sings beautifully on the Travelling yeah. Wilburys. And it's like he's got his mojo back a bit. Yeah. And then Oh Mercy mm. is... is a pretty great album. Yeah. Uh, Chadwick Wilbury's Volume Three is not as good as Volume One, but he's still singing well. And then, and then he basically goes wrong again on Under a Red Sky. This mm. is my version. I know. I think you're right. It's scientifically but, true. But is it the last full step he's taken? Because after I'm personally a huge fan of Good as I've been to you and Well Gone Wrong. Yep. And then from then on, we're on a on a what they well, call he's a in the driver's run. seat, isn't he? From then he's on. in the driver's yeah, seat, yeah. and they're brilliant. I said something to an old friend of mine the other day, which is that I didn't find I can't remember which album it was. Oh, no, it was one of the earlier, it was Times They Are Changing as an album. I didn't find it fun to listen to, and he said, Fun, what are you talking about? And mm. I said, but I think. I think music should be fun. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but I think like the Traveling Wilburys is, is pure fun. But to me, Blonde on Blonde is also fun. Under the Red Sky is not so much fun. I don't think he was having fun. I think Even though it's it, for the nursery rhymes. Yeah, well, I mean, I actually like a lot of Under the Red yeah, Sky. You know, I, I do. I like Wiggle Wiggle. I mean, that's yeah. a stupid, fun song. I like, I like Born no in Time, but I like other versions of it more oh, than, yes. the, than the... Yeah, uh, I'm with you. Peter, but with you. to me, I think the old concept of Bob Dylan... Uh, why should Bob Dylan always be so desperately serious? Why no, I should agree we, with you know, But well, can I put it to you that TV talking song might be the worst thing he's ever recorded? Ah, oh, we, were, we weren't going to mention <laughs> that. Is anybody going to defend TV? 
TV talking I'm going to defend the version that he didn't release, as is always the default <laughs> defense of any Dylan song. There's a kind of creeping paranoia in his vocal, which is completely what, what is this? Is this another from the sessions? Uh, session? It's from the same sessions. It. It's, it's available on bootleg. It hasn't been officially released. Um, I have put it on CD for both of you at some point, so you, yeah. you can hear it. Can but I just go back to your point about times they're changing? Because hmm. I would say that after freewheeling, you go into a period in which he is being hailed as a serious artist and he rises to it and writes quite serious songs, some of which are works of utter genius, mm. um, you know, like Hattie Carroll or whatever. And, and sometimes, like with God on Our Side, he's sort of writing a, a song that, you, you know, is a big, serious yeah. song. Mm. And it's not one of my favourites, if I'm mm-hmm. really honest. Mm. And actually one of the effects of going electric is that he can rediscover fun yeah. and be a bit of a pop star again. Mm. And so from the moment you go electric, you, you, you get songs that are a laugh to a greater degree. Mm. And, and thank God for that, because he could have gone overly serious and taken himself as seriously as other people were taking him. And, and it's a good thing that he didn't. Yeah, and I think his actual vocal style once he becomes electric is a lot more fun, a lot more funny, a lot more fluid. That yep. sort of, you know, Bob Dylan voice. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, which is, you know, much uh, more fun than the old folky voice. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's, I mean, a whole other field of studies worthy of a <clears throat> series in itself is of Dylan's different voices down the mm. years. And I, I don't think that how he's singing is necessarily, some of his best albums as vocal performance aren't necessarily as, I mean, I think around the time of Street Legal and Slow Train coming, he is singing as well as he's ever sung. Yeah. Mm. Wonderfully recorded, wonderful vocals. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't put either album in the absolute first rank of his albums. I'd put them in the second rank. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? I always, yeah. uh, and whereas Time Out of Mind, as we've just been saying, is, I think, a better album, but I don't like the singing. Or I don't like the way it was recorded. The way it was recorded. So, yeah. Yeah, no, well, they, 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 we have to sadly wrap it up. Uh, uh, we've got like one more uh, maybe topic. How do you feel when you, um, Peter Fincham, how do you feel when you, when you get a new Bob Dylan album? What, can you describe your feeling? I, the, the, do you know, the only, they're the only things to still buy on what they call physical in the musical industry. Uh-huh. Because as you can tell from the surroundings here, I kind of like, I like to physically own them. So everything else... Spotify, download, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of immensely exciting. But that's a very, actually, it's a very good question because going back to this business about the renaissance from the late 80s, early 90s onwards, I so remember the 80s when the experience of getting a Bob Dylan album was bracing yourself for how bad it could be <laughs> and assuming it would be bad. And the question was how bad. And I would say the nadir is down in the groove which I think there's almost almost no redeeming features to. That's an awful thing to say. But, uh, and so, you know, I, I can remember the wonderfulness with which you realised that that phase is over mm-hmm. and you're back to thinking, how good can it be? Could love and theft actually be as good as time is mine? Well, yes, it could. Could modern times coexist with those other, time, other two? Yes, it could. And that's a wonderful thing. It's so the, I'm, it, I'm back to being really excited about how good they can be. It reminds mm. me, that 80s thing reminds me of the disappointment. It reminds me of that line in, in Clockwise, the John Cleese film written by Michael Frayn, where he says along, I think I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I can deal with the disappointment. It's the hope I can't stand. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think we, we live in a world of, we, we don't know whether there's a new album of originals in, in the yeah. pipeline. Mm. Um, uh, it's been a while since Tempest now, yeah. and we've, we've yeah. had a diet of the... 
uh, uh, bootlegs and the crooning albums and so on. But if there is, I will fall upon it with, with the, the excitement I had as a kind of 14-year-old kid getting my bootleg of, 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 of the Royal Albert Hall. And, and the, the fact that he's occupied that place in my life for 50 years now is, is incredible. You, you, you know, uh, um, Richard Curtis said to me about Dylan, well, we should be grateful. We've breathed the same air he's breathed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, well, I, yeah, good yeah. way of putting it. We, We're alive we, at the we, same we, time we, as him. We have, there, are, there are many people who are, you know, truly major artists who we've yeah. yeah. lived through the same I consider era it, as, if we go to even a, a, a kind of a giant shithole like Wembley Arena, yeah. you're in the same room yeah. as yeah. Bob Dylan. That's why I go to see, you know, concerts that yes. may, may not even be that good, but just to be around. Uh, we haven't mentioned Shakespeare yet, but it's like being in the same room as, yeah, as, as Shakespeare. Absolutely yes. right. Anyway, I have to um, knock it on the head. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Thank you for inviting me. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Duquesne Suite at Fincham Shed Studios. Engineered by Bella Wieland. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare. I was sitting home alone one night in L.A. watching old Cronkite on the 7 o'clock news. It seems there was an earthquake that left nothing but a Panama hat and a pair of old Greek shoes. Didn't seem like much was happening, so I turned it off and went to grab another beer. <laughs>